When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's PK and Puyol or PK and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. Abner Mayers is a world champion boxer, Olympian, sports commentator, and most importantly, dad to two little girls. Beloved by abuelas and hardcore fans alike, Abner is a pro at entertaining the world both in and out of the ring. On Blue Wire's new podcast, On the Hook with Abner Mayers, we'll hear from Abner, his family, fellow athletes, and other people who made him the boxer and the man he is. They chat about topics like the state of boxing, sports, music, culture, and family life, and being a husband and a girl dad. Listen to On the Hook with Abner Mayers wherever you get your podcasts. Episodes in English out on Tuesdays and episodes in Spanish out on Wednesdays. Welcome to episode 223 of the Barcelona Podcast, home to the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hilton, and things are a little different this week. I'm not in my normal recording location, and today you'll be hearing from John Driscoll all about his new book, and he also helped me with some La Liga talk and El Clasico preparation. But first, with El Clasico on the horizon and potentially big things ahead for this podcast, I wanted to have one of those sentimental moments for a sec. So regular listeners of this podcast over the last three plus years you know that I often reference the U.S.-based podcast Total Soccer Show, hosted by Daryl Grove and Taylor Rockwell. Well, for me, my love for Barca and a desire to forge my own path in the sports world were my primary motivations for creating this show with Frances, and of course, Frances's initial idea to do something like this. But my main inspiration for the show was Daryl and Taylor. So unfortunately, for those who don't listen to both shows, Daryl has been dealing with stage 4 cancer for a while now, and there's nothing more that his doctors can do. So 
like other things I've occasionally talked about on this podcast, I wasn't sure if this was the place for this, but ultimately I always do choose to trust my gut. So I wanted to make sure that my listeners knew how significant of an influence that Daryl Grove had on the podcast that you're currently and have been listening to, some of you potentially for years now. And I do wanted to also bring attention, as much as he might not have liked attention, what was always inspiring to me was not only the standard to which he prepped every show, the unbelievable friendship that's shown through between he and Taylor, the entrepreneurial spirit that he had in making a podcast as their primary source of income, and certainly, I think almost anything above else was the respect and kindness that he showed every single guest that he ever had on the show. So if you never listened to Total Soccer Show, I would implore you to go back in the archives and maybe check out the Barca-related Total Soccer Shows and see what you can find. So I also wanted to say especially thank you to Daryl Grove. And as he has done so many times on his podcast, I'm going to try my best to transition from an important thing to me to an important thing to all of you, and that is El Clasico. So before we do get to the interview with John, which was recorded prior to Madrid losing to Cadiz and Shakhtar Donetsk, as well as prior to Barca losing to Adafe and beating Ferenvaros, here are my three storylines heading into El Clasico. Number one is Antoine Griezmann. He was rested against Ferenvaros, but we know that he's going to start. There are already so many calls for him to be a bench player, but as I said on the YouTube match review yesterday, Barca need, 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 need him to figure things out. I know people haven't been over the moon with his performances so far this year, but between Messi getting over not having a preseason and playing himself into form, plus the return of Dembele and Coutinho to some capacity, and the positive contributions that they are getting from Fati, Pedri, and Trincao, Fati and Pedri in particular have both almost exceeded lofty expectations for 17-year-olds. So this is a deep enough attacking force to win some trophies, but they have to get something out of Griezmann. Number two is injuries. Sergio Ramos will return from Madrid in time. We know that it's almost guaranteed. Barca are largely healthy outside of Ter Stegen and Jordi Alba and Mateus Fernandez. Yeah, I know I got jokes, but Neto and Serginho Dest have done enough and done well enough in their jobs in the stead of Ter Stegen and Jordi Alba to get some kind of result in this matchup and then against Juventus. So Madrid, meanwhile, is without Danny Cavajal and probably Hazard and Martin Odegaard and a few other depth pieces too. So Ramos should be returning for them, and you can see that Varane and Militao have not been the ideal partnership. And meanwhile, as far as injuries go, they've had two because of not having Hazard, and Kareem Benzema has not really been in form either. I'm not going to say it's an injury, but he has not been the player he was last year to help Madrid win the Liga, so they have been really relying on Vinicius Jr., and if you put Vinicius Jr. up against Fati, I'm still taking Fati, and then that's not adding Messi to the equation. So I think for all those who are saying that Madrid are the stronger team, and they've lost two matches, sure, and Barca are coming off a win, but it feels like Barca is a team that are in flux, and financially, yes, Madrid are in a much better financial situation for next season and beyond, but at the present moment, at the match that you're going to see on this on, on the weekend, Barcelona, I actually would say, are in a better spot, but they do have to take care of business because they are certainly not a team firing on all cylinders. Now, number three, that storyline is what this means for La Liga, and I kind of already said that with number two, but last season was the first time since 2012-13 that Barca failed to beat Los Blancos in either of their matchups, having drew and lost last season. With COVID creating such a cramped schedule and teams financing finances kind of figuring themselves out on the fly, other teams in the league could be hot on the trail of the two Giants. And even among each other, these two will drop points this year, and this match could prove to be the difference at the end of the year. So even though there are no fans, don't expect this match to be any less charged than normal. So that's all I got. Now let's hear from a real expert in John Driscoll. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the show John Driscoll from Sky Sports and many other places, including the podcast, The League Weekly with Terry Gibson. How are you, John? I'm very well. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be on. We are here to discuss your new book, 
But before we get to that, I think we should talk a bit about the upcoming El Clasico. And most importantly, people are saying, John, that this is going to be a toothless affair because of everything going on, particularly there are no fans. Do you agree with the lack of fans really having an impact on this match? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, toothless is going too far. And to make out that the players don't want it, that it won't still be a big occasion, I think is an exaggeration. But of course, yeah, I mean, the Classico, the fans, is, is it being there is a massive part of the Classico. You, you know, you, you can't divorce football from its supporter base. It, it's not an intellectual ep- exercise, is it? So, you know, when you're there in front of you know, tens of thousands of people and, you know, the nature of the, the Spanish football in particular is that you don't have many away fans. So this incredibly partisan, passionate following has a massive effect on the game. As have you seen now, the, the home advantage is disappearing because the games are being played without any supporters. So that kind of that will affect it. It will affect it in the build up. So, yeah, I mean, the Classico without the, the fans is still the best club match in uh, world football, but you know, I, I wish we were in a position where we get the fans in there. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it, it will be the Classico without the fans, and hopefully there won't be uh, many more to come after that. Yeah, it's certainly been interesting to me to see the way different sports have adapted it as well. I mean, I'm as our listeners know, I'm a big fan of the NBA, and I was watching almost every game there was to watch. And you can't tell me with the NBA Finals that you truly lost that that much. Where there were things that were different, surely, but those players, it looked like the NBA Finals for you. And I think for football, it, it's very much been the same. Where there have again, the the fans would improve the experience, but you can't tell me the competitive nature of the players is almost any less. And yes, home. Field advantage would be the one thing. The home advantage is is, is thing to, to uh, discuss here. But we do mainly talk Barca on this podcast. But La Liga is in an odd state, I think, overall, John, that, that you look at. And whether it's COVID or the football, the footballing cycle of talent, I guess you could call it. But this seems like the weakest Barca and Real Madrid iterations of those teams that we've seen in a while. What other teams do you think could be knocking down the door of La Liga this season? I think if I if you were severe, you would look at this season and think, you know what, this is the best opportunity, yeah. isn't it? Because of the because as you say, quite rightly, Barca and Real Madrid are not in a great place. Neither of those squads is at its best, probably the worst it's been for a number of years, probably for both of them. Um, Atletico would be another one, but Sevilla finished last season strongly, and as we saw uh, the game against Barca recently, they're they're a good team. Sevilla, they've added a couple in. Uh, you got you know have a tremendous amount of trust in in Monchi. So even if you don't necessarily know the players who've just signed uh, for for Sevilla, you know that there's been a very detailed progress uh, process in terms of recruiting them and finding the right people and backing Lopetegui. So I mean more so than ever. You know we've seen strange actually not so much in La Liga. Certainly in in the in the Premier League we've seen some crazy uh, results. La Liga I think they, I think it's a little bit more tactical. I think the coaches are a little bit more cautious. So you, you haven't seen crazy games in terms of goal scoring. But it, I think it's very hard to to predict results at the moment. I think if you're you know if if you're able to just marshal your forces to get the best out of the players in very d- difficult circumstances, it will be the team that is the most adaptable and the most resolute and with the most resilience that will win this season. And so you'd obviously have to say, you know, Barcelona, Real Madrid, they still have the best playing squads. But, you know, Sevilla have got a chance. Atletico have got a chance more so than any other season for for a, a number of years. 
Yeah, I, I'm not sure if you were alluding to the Aston Villa over Liverpool or Tottenham yeah. over Manchester United, but those are the ones that are, yeah, we haven't seen those kind of results just yet in La Liga. But you get the sense that, especially coming back from this international break, we have no idea. I mean, we also are pre-recording this, full discretion to the, the, the listeners, we are pre-recording this a little bit ahead of when you are hearing it. But coming back from the international break, I think you could see some teams in rather funks. And uh, particularly, again, this first weekend has already happened, but some results could be odd as in these coming weeks for La Liga. And the other thing I would ask you then about league is we move down because I, I completely agree with the point that Atletico Madrid still had Diego Simeone in charge. And yes, they might look a little different, but they've added the punch of Luis Suarez and n- not just him, but it is continuing the process that Diego Simeone does. And then Sevilla, you're right. This is year two of Lepertegui and, and when Monchi last year, what was it, eight or nine starters occasionally over the course of the season for Sevilla that were brought in. But I also look at, they say over the last few seasons that you should try to watch Real Betis. Now, there is a bit more stability than there has been, whether it was under Kike Setien or other managers in the recent seasons. And then Real Sociedad, and they have lost Odegaard. He's returned to Real Madrid. But do you think that they're, not to say that, as you've already given me, Sevilla and Atletico Madrid are the answers, but do you think that there is something to Real Betis and Real Sociedad, or do you think that they might just be more teams that have begun the season well and may not be able to keep pace for the course of this year? Uh, yeah, I mean the, the, the latter, Dan, in truth. Uh, Real Sociedad, they're a lovely team to watch. David Silva, as you say, is sort of a, a direct replacement for what Odegaard will do. I don't think they've got the, the depth. I don't think they've got the goal scorers to go all the way. And as long as I've been watching Real Betis, I think one of the, the, one of the, the standards of, of Spanish football is that Betis will let you down. Uh, so <laughs> no matter what changes they make, I know Pellegrini is there now, and I know you know they played a couple of good uh, games this season. They were unlucky against uh, Real Madrid, but uh, but absolutely classic Betis is then to lose against Hetafe and get well beaten by Hetafe. I, I think this season we'll see Betis, and every now and again. Uh, you'll get your hopes up uh, and you'll think, oh, come on, maybe Betis are really good. Like the first half season or so of Kike Setien. Uh, I've seen it so many times where we've thought, oh, maybe this time, maybe this time for Betis. Yeah, and, and I know Barca fans are listening to this, but if there was, you know, if, 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 I, if I was a billionaire and I was buying a Spanish club, I'd buy Betis because of the, the fan base and the lack of achievement given the size of the club, which is extraordinary. But no, no, that won't change. They, they, they will continue to be as flaky. They'll be in and out. Um, you know, I, 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 like I say, watch out for the resilient, hardworking, well-organized teams this season. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. The wait is finally over. Football is back. And that's American football. You may not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. 
BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but I actually do. A number of our listeners, their number two team that they would watch in La Liga is Real Betis, not just because of the playing style. It just it seems to be the thing that's that's existed, especially the ones that are from Spain. It tends to be something uh, that goes across with our listeners. Now, I, I do have to ask her then about the bottom of the table, because coming into this season, particularly what had happened with the promotion playoffs last season, you'd think that Elche was one of the weaker La Liga promotions that we have seen in quite, quite some time, just again, due to the nature, then them having to start late and they're going to have to make up matches later on because of how late COVID had pushed those promotion playoffs as well. And yet, when you look at the other promoted teams, including Cadiz, you kind of wonder if they would have had great struggles, sure. But then you look at the, the bottom of the table here uh, just about a month into the season and you have, at, at present time, again, it changes every weekend, but there are a lot of teams down here, whether it's Elche or Alaves or at the moment, it's Levante, Athletic Club and Real Valladolid. So it seems to me that uh, an Athletic Club, they've never been relegated. So we do expect that they are going to bounce back and they're doing the thing they do every season where they have a ton of bad matches in a row and maybe they'll get it out of their system. Maybe they won't. But it does seem to me, John, that and this is, again, not disparaging the teams this year, but I think another one of those effects of COVID is that we could see almost a race to the bottom as well this year in the Liga. Are you getting the sense of that? Because when I watch the matches, it doesn't seem to be any worse. I mean, Cadiz are certainly missing their fans, sure, but they've put in some fine defensive performances. Celta de Vigo looks a little bit improved this season. So, I mean, even Huesca have put together good performances and still at present time only have four points. So again, do you think across La Liga we are seeing... Uh, better football, but yet results are still hard to come by for a lot of teams. And we might have, let's say, a few teams with less points than normal. Um, I, I see no pushovers, Dan. It would be the way I, I, I would see it. The, you know, I think the days of uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid putting seven and nine past teams, I think, but who knows with the exceptional circumstances, no fans, etc. But I think that is, is a rarer thing. I think the teams at the bottom, I mean, as we speak, Real Valladolid, the bottom of the league, uh, but they're a decent team. They're well organised. You know, they're 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 hard to to, to break down. Uh, I think Athletic have started badly. I agree with you, though. It, it, you know, there should be some kind of a reversion to the mean for them, and they should get better. Uh, Alaves, I think, will struggle. And then you're right. I mean, Elche would seem an obvious one because of the the haphazard way that it's been put together. They only sneaked up through the playoffs very very late in the day. I mean, it was, an, it was incredibly late, wasn't it? Then I couldn't believe they still went through the full rigmarole of the playoffs, given the circumstances and given how close to the start of this season that would push us. But and then obviously every year you look at a, a new an, an elite league, you've got to say. The teams coming up are the ones with it all to do. And there's no evidence of that being uh, any different. It's, but it's, it's very early days and there's a lot of shaking down to do. And and like I say, come back to the point of resilience because the games keep coming. Uh, and, you know, once the Copa del Rey starts up again, and certainly, obviously, more at the top end for the teams who are playing continental European football as well, um, it's, it's a relentless grind. And you know, so you, you've got to you've got to show the strength of character, the resilience to keep bouncing through that. It's not obvious, you know. If if you if you wanted to bet, I'd say obviously Elche, 
uh, would be the team to finish bottom. But you know, you know, it's not done. It's 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 a good season in that respect, isn't it? I know there are lots of downsides of this current season, but you know, there are lots of things that we that are unpredictable looking this far, you know, looking now into the future. Right, and I think some normalcy. Uh, this is just one more question. Then we're going to definitely talk about your book here. One more question, going back to El Clasico, that there is definitely a sense of normalcy in. I mean, at least for those on the Bas- uh, on the Barça Real Madrid side of things, that there is certainly the build up and the buzz and the excitement of an El Clasico. There, it does add something to the season where it feels like, okay, this is an official season. This season makes sense to me. So, just talking El Clasico once once more. Win or lose, do you think there's really anything we can learn about? Uh, it's almost like a science experiment. Uh, anything we can learn from Ronald Koeman, because he really much is the variable in El Clasico, while Zidane obviously is the constant over the last few seasons. And in the same way, Real Madrid haven't really added any new faces. Barcelona have obviously had this gigantic overhaul of their squad. Well, gigantic is, <laughs> what, the 30 40% <laughs> of their squad. But you get my, my point that, do you think Ronald Koeman, not only can anything we learn from the match, but do you find him adding a wrinkle to El Clasico? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's yeah, there's a lot to be learned from the match. We're finding out from Kuman all the time, aren't we? As you say, uh, Zidane is is the opposite. Of, we'll get to the book in a bit. I know, but Zidane is in the book. He is the opposite as a manager that he was as a player. This elegant player, uh, slightly mercurial. You couldn't pin him down. At this Real Madrid team, uh, they're hardworking. Uh, as as we, as we say in England, they sweat it out. You know, it's 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 hard working, well organised, nothing fancy going on. So we know what we'll get from Real Madrid, and then it's a question, therefore, of what we can do, of what Barcelona can do. Uh, I've been, I stand to be corrected because there's a game coming up this weekend. Uh, but you know, I I think so far, so far, so okay, okay for for Barcelona is a very difficult circumstances, as you say. The overhaul has been largely in one direction. It's been uh, getting players off the wage bill because of the precarious financial situation that the um, the Barcelona uh, sporting management and club management has, has got the team into, and so it's it's a difficult circumstances for for Ronald Koeman. He was very few people's first choice in truth, wasn't it? I think the the general swell of opinion was to go for Xavi in the circumstances. Um, I think Setien had to go after the, the the shambles of the the Bayern Munich game at the end of last season. So Koeman, not really first choice, but experienced manager, uh, a pragmatist. Probably not the not the worst person to have in charge. Um, you wouldn't build the Barcelona squad like it is now. You, you know, very few people would would with a clean slate would say let's you know build the squad and balance it in the way that Barcelona is balanced. But uh, they're still still messy. They're still tremendous players. Uh, if they can find a way of getting goals out of Griezmann, out of Dembele, and even Martin Brathwaite, um, then Barca it could be a good season. Yes, and and yeah, the first massive challenge, obviously Juve to come as well in the Champions League. But uh, yeah, so it's a huge, it is a huge few days for Ronald Koeman and for Barcelona. We'll find out a lot, I think, over the course of the, the Clasico and then the Juve game. Yeah, I think it's the media narrative as well that being a former player, being a former Barca legend, as if to say he understands and knows El Clasico, but it is a match that he's been away from for 20 years since the time when he was even helping out on the sidelines after his playing career uh, at the camp. No, again, we're talking 20 years that he's even been in coaching. So he's seen big affairs as well, but yeah, this is going to be his first El Clasico in charge, of course, of Barcelona. But after all this football talk, our listeners will probably want to sit down with a good book, and next month they can do just that with your new book. It's called The 50, Football's Most Influential Players, which, again, we're going to talk about now. So we're going to start with one of the older uh, iterations of the players that you're speaking about. So you did warn me that Alfredo Di Stefano is someone that we were going to talk about, and he does make an appearance in the book. Now, 
from my perspective and all the reading I've done on the situation, I think not only will you never fully know the truth, but I also think that it's hard to argue how significant that moment is for the rivalry between Barca and Real Madrid. Interesting name to talk about on the eve of El Clasico. But I mean, I'm not asking you to change my mind, but do you come to different conclusions there? Or am I just being a biased Barca podcast host? Uh, no, no, I, 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 I quote uh, Sid Lowe, so, I, so I'll push this one the way of a, of, uh, a real La Liga expert. Uh, he said 1953 uh, was the year there was before Alfredo Di Stefano and after Alfredo Di Stefano. Um, it transformed because Barca were the better team. Barca had, had a good few seasons and had won the league like four out of six or something like that, uh, going up to the signing of Alfredo Di Stefano. Uh, it is an incredible story, isn't it? I, I, I could say only La Liga, but he moved, just to, I'll give a quick recap in case people don't know uh, the story. He, were, he was from Argentina, brilliant player, so he was in the Argentina uh, League. Uh, there was arguments about whether there would be a, a maximum wage and professionalism in Argentina. Uh, at the same time, the Colombian uh, FA and League got into an argument and FIFA suspended them. So the, the Colombian League then took advantage of that and essentially set up uh, what is now like very much like the, the modern Premier League, in that suddenly they decided that there, because there was no FIFA registration, there was no transfer fees uh, to be played to be paid, and so clubs, so players left clubs from all around the world and went to play in Colombia, and without transfer fees to be paid, they were being paid a fortune because there were maximum wages in in most other countries and limited professionalism in lots of countries, and so guys went from England, and crucially a, gr- a group went from Argentina. So uh, Di Stefano was the best of them. He played for uh, Millonarios um, and uh, he, he won the title. He'd, he'd won the title in Argentina. He won the title in Colombia. He'd been there a few seasons. Eventually, they came to an agreement, FIFA and the Colombian authorities, and they were wrapping up uh, the, this Colombian league, the El Dorado, as it was dubbed. And so they were then the players then had to start looking around in the future. So uh, they played a game in, in Spain. Uh, Di Stefano was, was spotted. He was known by both uh, Bernabeu, who was in charge of Real Madrid, and also Barcelona. So Real Madrid made an offer to Millonarios, the Colombian club, to buy him. Uh, at the same time, Barcelona made an offer uh, to River Plate. Uh, and so who was he to sell? Uh, so it's this extraordinary situation. Initially, uh, the Spanish authorities said he was Barca's uh, because they bought him from the club he was registered with, his, his, his proper club. But Bernabeu was influential. Uh, he'd fought on the right side of the Civil War, so he knew the authorities, he, he knew uh, Franco. How much he used that, as you say, Dan, we, we will never know the, what happened behind closed doors in all of this. What we do know is that I think Barton made what I would consider to be a monumental, historic mistake of of, of giving away their claim on Di Stefano, basically just taking their transfer uh, fee back and walking away. Because there's an extraordinary situation. It was that the, the authorities ruled that he would play for Real Madrid one year, Barca the next, Real Madrid next, and Barca the next, which is just mind-blowing. Yeah. Um, so he played for, he ended up playing for Real Madrid, and it changed everything. Uh, they went on that run of winning uh, of winning La Liga, but they therefore were Spain's first representative when they started the the European Cup, and they won the first five European Cups, and, and Real Madrid became the club that it is. Uh, and Barcelona had some hard times uh, to come after that, all because of the, the losing the battle for Alfredo Di, Di, Di Stefano. You know, I think I think uh, you know I think Sid is right. I think, you know, obviously, I, I I respect his opinion. It was 
it was monumental. It was, it was seismic in, in, the, in the history of Spanish and European football. Yeah, and then that's the key there, the European success that you speak about, that the idea of Barcelona and Real Madrid in the way that we think of them today was severely influenced. I mean, Real Madrid, looking at their early history, were not a, we'll call it a politicized club, until the European success, when obviously Franco said, I mean, there's something to be proud of. When when you win the European trophy in the way that Real Madrid did, year after year after year, uh, they were certainly something for the, the, the government to not use or as, as a prop, but to be proud of. Uh, and simply then that is the connection that, that was made there. But yeah, Real Madrid historically were not necessarily this not even political rival, but they weren't necessarily uh, anything more than just another quality team in the Liga. And it does actually almost make me think of the Barca Femini El Clasico that just took place where uh, you have obviously everyone on the Barcelona side. Not only was the match not close, I think it will get closer through the coming years, but everyone on the Barcelona side just saying, no, the Barcelona Femini rivalry is Atletico Madrid. That's the one that they contend for the title with. Real Madrid have yet to create their own history. So there, I, I hope there is no Di Stefano moment coming for the Real Madrid-Barcelona <laughs> Femini version of that rivalry. But yeah, we are to see. And yeah, certainly the uh, Di Stefano, it might be a hard pill to, for the uh, Barcelona fans to, 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 to swallow simply because it also led to the end of the, the reign of the Barcelona president as well. He wound up stepping down. And so many of the people involved behind the scenes in Barcelona were basically exercised from the club in the, the 10 or so years after that. So uh, great upheaval, but uh, Barcelona so thankfully has rebounded. That's why we get El Clasico the way it did. And some of the players that did help Barca eventually rebound, you talk about some of those. Uh, Johan Cruyff as well. Diego Maradona, not so much. But then we talk about getting into the 21st century with the Brazilian Ronaldo, Xavi, Messi. You hit all of these different players and more. And an American basketball author and media guy, Bill Simmons, again, a big figure here in the United States, always talks about, he calls it in his book of basketball, The Secret, that legendary players seem to know. When you were looking at all these different biographies, particularly the Barcelona players or former Barcelona players, do you find parallels between all of these stars who all seem to have different personalities and styles and yet seem to come to the same, we'll say, glorious end of, of, of footballing brilliance? I think what they've all got in common is is an early obsession. I think of, of everyone's, you know, I've read a lot of autobiographies, a lot of biographies in this process. They're all obsessed uh, with football. I think that probably goes without saying, doesn't it? But I think there are certainly when you look at the so the five Barcelona players who there who appear in the book, uh, obviously not counting the Di Stefano. Uh, I think three of those. Uh, it works out well for them. I think it, I think their Barcelona story reflects their general story as well. So I would say Cruyff, a uh, happy story for for Barcelona. Although to be fair, because he he, won, he had this spectacular beginning. He'd had all the success with Ajax three times. You know, they'd gone from an amateur club to winning the European Cup three times uh, when Cruyff was there. He fell out with them because Cruyff fell out with everybody. And it's all, all the way through his autobiography. It's all everybody else's fault. And a series of arguments happen. And eventually I'm reading that. I'm thinking, you know what, Johan, this might have, you might have had something to do with this series of arguments you have. Uh, but he went to Barcelona, uh, immediate success, 5-0 victory in the Clasico. They go from mid-table to winning La Liga. They haven't won La Liga in many, many years. But after that, it, it stagnates again uh, under Cruyff. It's not really until he goes back as a manager uh, that Barca then has a, a proper period of success. In the you know We mentioned Ronald Koeman earlier. So you know, in that Ronald Koeman as a player uh, phase. So success for Cruyff, but crucially, uh, what he does, he lays the template, uh, not just for Barcelona, but also for Ajax, or he helped lay the, the template for Ajax, also for the Spanish national team and also for the Dutch national team. 
Beyond that, Cruyff also lays the template. I see football being played in a in a Cruyff style all over. I see it in kids' football in England when I go and watch kids play. Um, everywhere around the world, Cruyff's influence is there. And so uh, he and then Xavi is in that uh, uh, in that bracket as well. And obviously, as, as Pep Guardiola said, the best of the, the Cruyff uh, alumni is, is Lionel Messi uh, in the way he plays, in the way that he uses his brain, he, he uses his energy uh, better than anybody else in the history uh, of football. And then on the other side, uh, you do have these um, crazy characters who uh, who stumble through from, you know, uh, there, and there are some fascinating ones. There are other ones such as Garincha, such as George Best, uh, Jose Andrada in the book. But Maradona, his life is just extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. So some of these guys, you are just telling uh, great stories. Uh, rhyme or reason in Diego Maradona's story? <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to find that. His time at Barcelona was was incredible, uh, unsuccessful, uh, dominated by his clashes with with Athletic. Um, the you know the the butcher of Bilbao, uh, Goicochea, who who broke his leg, and then that uh, extraordinary Copa del Rey final that erupts in a fight on the pitch that then turned into a riot. Um, you can go on YouTube and, and watch that. So the, the, you know, the Barcelona athletic uh, Copa del Rey final uh, and Diego and Maradona knocks somebody out who's getting back to his feet. having been knocked over. Maradona kicks him in the head. It, it's just extraordinary. And then uh, Ronaldo's story. Now I, I love Ronaldo and I don't think I, it's a shame that I started this, the, the chapter this way, but I felt I had to defending the fact that Ronaldo was one of the world's best ever players. Well, that's what I was going to um, ask, Sean. Do you think there's any greater? I mean, this is just what I see. That is there any greater mm -hmm. what if in football history than Brazilian Ronaldo? I mean, I mean, I'm I'm just graduating. I mean, here in the states, high school as Ronaldo is playing for AC Milan. So obviously, I would see him in grainy footage playing for Barcelona and then Real Madrid into the Champions League when I was uh, a little bit younger. But yeah, by the time I'm really uh, looking at players to idolize as I was in, you know, getting getting all, all my work in, Brazilian Ronaldo was this guy who didn't really have much speed, but he was a legend as he's bouncing around for AC Milan and even with his haircut, <laughs> where it just, it's a different player. It's just not the same thing. Yeah, because unfortunately, it was it was quite. I mean, there were cruel jibes about his weight. He was he was hugely overweight. Uh, by the end, he had a thyroid problem. He was offered drugs for it for it that he didn't want to take because he feared he would he would come up against the the drug testers and fail drugs tests. He also had crippling knee injuries that his medical staff at the time claim reinvented or helped to help to revolutionize sports medicine because they repaired his knees, whereas previous players with those injuries had just had to retire. So that happened early in his in his inter days. And so by the time so you will remember uh, this, you know, this this overweight guy and you're sort of scratching your head wondering, well, why does everyone say he was good? I promise you. Uh, it's that homework for everybody. I know you're, you're here to be entertained, everybody, but go and do some homework. Go and have a look at Ronaldo, so Brazilian Ronaldo's season at Barcelona. He was only at the club for one season. He was incredible. The, 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 the phenomena, they call him. The speed with which that man ran with the ball was unbelievable. So they signed him from Dutch football. He'd been with, with PSV Eindhoven. He'd scored a shed load of goals there. Uh, Bobby Robson was the manager uh, at uh, Barcelona that season, and they, they just let him off the leash. He, he made enemies. You know, people were, were too harsh uh, in their, their judgment of Ronaldo. Obviously, Messi and Ronaldo have hit new heights, 
But really, in terms of their consistency of, of putting it down, you know, I think six times is it that Messi's passed 50 goals in a season. It's incredible. It's, it, it will, you know, it's, it's unrivaled, except by Ronaldo. Uh, but that's that. So Brazilian Ronaldo, pre his injury with Inter, was on that level. He was on the Messi mm-hmm. level. He, you know, he, re, he really was. And I tried to you know, emphasize you know, just what a player he was. And it was, a, it was a dreadful shame that he got injured when he did. It was a dreadful shame that the 1998 World Cup final overshadows his story. No one quite knows. He doesn't quite know because he, he had a fit before the game, but they still put him on the pitch. Uh, it was a bad decision by Zagallo, who was the Brazil coach at the time. Um, and, and so it sort of overshadows. I was so happy for him that he then came back and got some redemption in the 2002 World Cup final where Brazil won. And he was you know, he was a brilliant player in that tournament. Not long having come back after a late, his latest injury. Uh, what, I mean, what a player uh, Ronaldo was. He, does he fit anything, any other templates? Do we learn anything from him? I don't know. Uh, I, in the book, I, I try to hesitate. I hesitate. I'm trying to draw lessons that aren't there. Um, you, you know, sometimes football, it's a low-scoring game. It's a game of luck. Sometimes um, there are st- stuff happens that doesn't fit into any template. Uh, Ronaldo was was an exceptional player. We were blessed to have him. It was such a shame that the second half of his career, second two-thirds of his career, was blighted by injury and, and illness. But, you know, I think we uh, appreciate what he was. And I think Barcelona had the best of him. Well, yeah, when we do speak about the characters that you're speaking about already, whether it is Ronaldo, who now we know that he is an, uh, an owner of Real Valladolid, uh, where he is he is having this post-football life, if you will, but it is very much a little more quiet, if you will, than Diego Maradona's, who, as we spoke about before, is a man who has lived so, so, so many lives. But even though he does float around the coaching scene for public relations reasons or otherwise, he is, as years go on, he fades a little more into the footballing spotlight as his life continues to be something that we all focus on. And then Cruyff, as, as you mentioned, you alluded to in his book that I had, I read my turn as well. And I mean, autobiographies are expected to hear the word I or coming from a first person perspective, but I don't think I've ever heard the word or seen the word I more in an autobiography than my turn by Johan Cruyff. But I do want to speak, though, about what it took and some of the challenges, if you will, of writing about Xavi and Messi, where, again, not to make comparisons to basketball, but with LeBron James, he just won the NBA title. I continue to think and people continue to say that his story is not yet written. And this is beyond just having an argument about who the greatest players of all time is. But for Messi, because his footballing life is not yet finished and who knows if he'll continue on we don't expect him to be a manager but who knows where his footballing life will continue after he's hung up his boots and then Xavi the same way where we know that his coaching career or at least we have the sense that his coaching career is potentially just beginning did you find challenges in trying to almost put a bow on the narrative of those two personalities those two figures whose footballing life is obviously not even close to being over for either uh, yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it is difficult. The, so the yeah, the the latter stages of the book, you are you're a little bit in the lap of the gods. I mean, particularly with Messi, because obviously after I, after I'd sent the book off to the publisher, there was then all of the 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 rumours of, of of him leaving and going to Manchester City. And I'm thinking, oh come come on, Leo, <laughs> Leo I, either move or don't move, mate. <laughs> you know, because we've got to we've got to send this book off to the printer at some point. Um, so yeah, so that's the difficulty. The way I approach Messi is essentially to talk about. Uh, the comparison that he's gone through in his life, the comparison with two other players, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, an, an, op- an obsessive uh, comparison between the two players. Uh, I sometimes, I often wish, you know, can we not just enjoy 
uh, the two players. They're quite different. Uh, I think Messi is the best of the two, but then Cristiano uh, is is an incredible player as as, as well, and, and you know, and, and deserves respect. And then the other one is Maradona, uh, because the other everyone has to comment all the time on Lionel Messi's perceived lack of success uh, with Argentina, uh, other than go back and you know be 20 years older and restructure the whole of Argentinian football. I don't know what he could have done more than he has done. Uh, for Argentina and one downside that he had that Maradona didn't have was that he had Maradona as his coach at probably possibly the peak of of what what, what they they should have been at their strongest in 2010 instead it was an absolute shambles uh, Argentinian football it has remained so uh, to the point where you know the 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 few months of last season uh, Barcelona probably felt like his whole international career in that, you know, there was no plan uh, or no plan that anyone could figure out. Uh, give the ball to Leo, see what happens. Uh, and so, yeah, so it, it is difficult to get perspective on it. So I, I, I went in for that comparison. I, I didn't do too many stats. The thing with, with Messi and stats, you can get snow blinded uh, because he is he is just so good. He is oh, he, he's the best ever. He's a wonderful player. We're, we're blessed to have seen him play. Uh, Xavi was the biggest dilemma. Uh, right up until almost literally until I sat down and wrote the chapter, I'm thinking, should I go Iniesta or should I go Xavi? <laughs> you know, who yeah. who of the two of them uh, was the most influential? Obviously, Iniesta scored the goal that won the the, the World Cup final in 2010 as well. So the, the, there is that element, but because I wanted to tell the story, I mean, the way the book works, it, it moves on through history and I sort of, it sort of takes a, a wending path in that I try and pick up all the World Cups, major European occasions. I go back to the English football as well and pick up, you know, the, the trends in that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, obviously that, that Spain team, which was the best international team I think to win three to win two European championships the World Cup in between they went into the World Cup everybody thinking they should win the World Cup and they did obviously they rode their luck at times because that's you know that's football but um, so in my mind that was the best that was the best team and in the end with a bit of uh, help from uh, my my friend and and Barcelona author Graeme Hunter uh, I I, we we, uh, I came with with Xavi just because he was a little bit more influential on the style of play and the team than Iniesta. Now, at the end, I, I give a little nod to the fact that Xavi's story isn't finished, but this is a book of players. It's not really their managerial careers. Uh, and of course, Xavi could have a big chapter uh, yet to come in, in Barcelona. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, he was if, he was easier to write because his career was effectively over when he left Barcelona. I know he went to play uh, for Al Saad in Qatar, but you know, his, his, his competitive career was all Barcelona and he, I, I decided, along with Iniesta, obviously, was so representative of that that wonderful era. And, and for my mind, um, the best club team that I saw play, the most exciting, I think, that first season. They might have got slightly better after that, but the first Pep season where they went from having been a shambles the previous season to suddenly putting six goals uh, past good teams in La Liga, and do you know, and, and winning the European Cup or the Champions League as well. Uh, that, I mean, that you know, I wanted to reflect on that. Xavi played a huge part. It was it was it was a wonderful era to have witnessed. Yeah, and it is interesting when Xavi and Iniesta, when people choose to write about them, or even the way that we speak about them off the pitch. I mean, their personalities. Where Iniesta, I think you made the right choice simply because I think Iniesta's story is one that we are spoon fed over and over again about how he was afraid to come from uh, Alicante, and he obviously the shy boy that decided to come to La Masia in the way that he did. And I feel like we do know Iniesta's and the gentleness to Iniesta's personality. Now, obviously, he's ruthless on the pitch, but the gentleness to Iniesta's 
personality that you could see that always comes out either it's in interviews or just in his demeanor. Uh, it's something that I think people really do. Uh, it resonates personality wise to people and say that he seems almost be a reluctant superstar. And I think a lot of the times when you're looking at people who you want to idolize or people who might be like you, Iniesta winds up feeling like he's more like us than a Xavi, to a degree, I think even Messi, where uh, Messi might come off as being a little more shy, but everything in Xavi, every answer he gives, and it's certainly changed since he went to Qatar, where certainly I did not bring you on to get into all of those things, but as far as all of his answers to Spanish media or things that we've heard from Xavi over time, that things by Xavi seem to be always through the lens of football. It seems that he begins and ends by talking through football, and his story just seems not too common, but that I came to La Masia, I could have gone on loan but or, or be sold, but I fought for my chance when Barcelona was not very good. I fought through that, and then I became Xavi. And then as that whole process is happening, all that winning is happening, he seems to just be a, a leader figure amongst all of these fantastic and wonderful players, whether it was the Spanish national team with Iker Casillas. And I think for Xavi, there's almost this code that you still need to crack and say, why is this guy or how does this guy's brain work so much that Iniesta really does seem to love the football, but he had his reservations about loving it as much as he could have because of his personality. But Xavi's personality seems to be football, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. No, he, I mean, Xavi, if you were to draw a, a line as, you know, sort of, uh, the family tree of, of that style of football, you'd go Cruyff, Guardiola, Xavi. And that's obviously at the core of so many Barca fans wanting him uh, to, to be the coach of the club. Um, in the future, because it, it it does work that way, doesn't it? In that uh, Guardi, uh, sorry, Cruyff had a had a philosophy that he worked on with Rinus uh, Michels, who was the old coach of Ajax, and then the the Dutch national team, and uh, and also Barcelona. So they 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 developed this style of play about understanding the dimensions of the pitch, understanding uh, positional play as it as it uh, you know came to be to be known, and and developing a style of play and, and, and an aesthetic kind of football, a beauty within football, that it's not just about grinding out results. You know, when Cruyff lost the 1974 World Cup final, he said he wasn't that bothered because they brought beauty um, to the world. And then, and obviously, then as a player, uh, he had uh, Pep Guardiola. And then Xavi was uncomfortable about taking over from Pep Guardiola as a player. He wasn't exactly the same sort of player, but you're, you're right, Danny, he was exactly the same sort of character, uh, obsessional about football. And, and what Xavi achieved was to change minds again, because he came in uh, to top-level European football around the time that the best players were the likes of Michael Ballack, who was six foot something, Steven Gerrard, six foot, uh, Patrick Vieira, six foot something. So you had these big powerhouse midfielders who could do a bit of everything. And then you had Xavi coming along uh, and, and Guardiola had never quite... Barca fans loved Guardiola. Uh, there were always Guardiola fans, but no one ever put him on a par with those the, the big powerful midfielders of that era. But Xavi changed perspectives. And I, I give an example in the book as well, where uh, in England there's the, a newspaper called The Daily Mail and at the, at the Ballon d'Or... I think Xavi had come fifth, if I remember rightly. Kaká had won it, uh, so there was there was Kaká, uh, Ronaldo, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, Messi, and I think Xavi had come fifth. So they're all standing there, and the, the Daily Mail jokes: "Here are the best players in the world." Open brackets and Xavi, which showed you the low regard that he was held in. He, that they were they were joking that he was held, that but the Ballon d'Or panel, panel had put him on a par almost uh, with the the best midfielders in the world. Now, a few years later, so after they win the World Cup, uh, Michel Platini asks 
chavvy for his shirt uh, to take away as the representative. You know, I see you as the 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 you know the the heir of of the great midfielder. And the Daily Mail uh, ran an apology to Chavi for having underestimated him a couple of years earlier and been dismissive and, and jokey about uh, him being a top world class midfield player uh, because Chavi changed perspectives. And then then you start getting the the Belgian FA uh, trying to develop like the Spanish. FA had developed all around, as I say, when I it's still now in 2020, when I watch youth football uh, in England, they're trying to play like Pep Guardiola's side. Now, to find that the reason that Xavi is so important is that Xavi, because of his brains, because of his technical ability, was the way of putting Guardiola's vision onto the pitch uh, without having to spend 400 million quid, <laughs> which is what is, you know, mm-hmm. what he does at Manchester City. Well, I, I've seen what the Daily Mail has, has has written recently about Usmane Dembele. So what I do tell my listeners is usually throw those stories out. But as you throw out the Daily Mail, I would say you pick up a copy of the 50 football's most influential players written by John Driscoll. So give him a follow on Twitter at DriscollFC or if you're in the UK, keep flipping through the games and you may just find his voice as well. So most importantly, John, I do want to ask how and where can people expect your book? Uh, so it's on it's on Amazon. So and all of the so it's again uh, well it's it, it's published by Pitch Publishing. So PitchPublishing.co.uk. If you want to buy it directly uh, from the the publisher, uh, or you can share my money with Jeff Bezos. Feel free. Uh, it's on it's, it's on Amazon as, again. So just find it. Uh, yeah, the fifty football's most influential players probably search through my name. The, the downside of the name, the fifty. It's easy to remember, but it, the 50 does appear in an awful lot of book searches. So, yeah, so John Driscoll, D-R-I-S-C-O-L-L, uh, 50, uh, the 50 football's most influential players. Yeah, we'll have that linked as well. So, John, thank you so much for the time. Brilliant. Good to talk to you, Dan. So thanks again to John Driscoll for joining the show, and thanks to you for tuning in. You can tap in your app and check out the show notes to subscribe. You can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at the Barcelona Pod or at HealthMD13 for me, and on Instagram at the Barcelona Pod. You know our closed Facebook group is tbpod.link backslash group. Deeper dive discussions and all of that, and also help us out on Patreon to continue making these shows at tbpod.link backslash Patreon. As you know, we're also on YouTube with all those match reviews and some of the extra video goodies that we have on the side. That is at the Barcelona Podcast. So check us out there and hit that subscription button. And thanks so much for listening to the Barcelona Podcast. Until next time, We'll talk to you soon in Forza Barca.